the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. We're glad to have you with us. Uh, coming up at a five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Robert Lopez. He's a contributor of The New Normal, The Transgender Agenda. The book deals in the first half with the transgender agenda and then broadens to other related issues as well. He'll be joining us in the five o'clock hour. Well, there's a lot to talk about today. We'll start out with some of the developing news stories from earlier in the day, and then we'll delve into a few of them. Uh, certainly the allegations that have been um, posed against the uh, president's nominee to fill the vacancy on the Supreme Court, some of the back background uh, there. And we've now learned that there's going to be a hearing on Monday. We'll fill you in on those details as well. Well, Democrats have demanded a delay in a key Senate vote this week on Supreme Court uh, Justice, or well, I should say nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. His confirmation after a woman accused him of sexual assault when they were teens uh, came forward on Sunday, which isn't exactly accurate. She uh, wrote a letter said uh, to her representative. It was passed along to Senator Feinstein. Uh, She did not want to be outed, if you will. Uh, That was sort of done for her. And now she has said she's willing to uh, to testify if called upon, which she has now been called upon to do. Also, the death toll from Hurricane Florence has risen to at least 17 as residents of a North Carolina community have been told to evacuate with fears that the uh, a dam is about to break. And text messages exchanged by anti-Trump former FBI officials Peter Strzok and Lisa Page are under new scrutiny after Page told lawmakers there was no evidence of Russian collusion at the time that the Mueller investigation was initiated. Uh, Soon Yi Previn, wife of filmmaker Woody Allen, broke her silence on sexual assault allegations against her husband and accused her adoptive mother of taking advantage of the Me Too movement. But first, Judge Kavanaugh, his accuser, has gone public. The confirmation of Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh was thrown into chaos on Sunday when the woman accusing him of sexual assault back when they were teenagers came forward with her explosive allegations. The woman is Christine Blasey Ford, a professor at Palo Alto University. And according to The Washington Times, uh, they published her account on Sunday. She said the alleged incident with Kavanaugh derailed her for years and rendered her unable to have healthy relationships. Ford's uh, decision uh, to go public capped a whirlwind series of events that began when Senator Dianne Feinstein sent shockwaves through Washington by announcing she had sent the FBI information about Kavanaugh she received from an anonymous accuser in July. Now, the question is why we're only now hearing about it in September. It also threatened to upend Kavanaugh's confirmation as top Democrats called for a full investigation. Now, many Republicans immediately pushed back, saying it was disturbing that the decades-old allegations surfaced just days before the Judiciary Committee was set to vote on whether to advance Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Senate floor. Republicans have given no indication that they intend to delay the uh, key vote, although we now know that that key vote has been uh, pushed forward. Um, At least the hearing on Monday uh, will take the place of what would have been a key vote on Thursday. We'll more on that in a few moments. Senate Judiciary Committee spokesman Taylor Foy said Chairman Chuck Grassley was working to set up follow-up calls 
uh, with Kavanaugh and Ford in light of the Post report. And the death toll from Hurricane Florence has risen to 18 uh, after a three-year-old died when a pine tree crashed into a mobile home and another was swept away earlier today when he and his mother were trying to exit a vehicle that was caught up in rising waters. The large pine tree split the mobile home down its center, according to police, and that first uh, childhood tragedy. The tragedy happened around 1245, the Gaston Gazette reported. The paper identified the child as Cade Gill. Uh, Leatherwood said his uh, boy's father and mother were home but not hurt. The rising death count from uh, Florence came as officials of Ash County North Carolina told residents in the community of Creston to evacuate their homes. A dam holding back water swollen by Florence officials said threatens to break. Florence has dumped more than 30 inches of rain across North Carolina since it made landfall as a Category 1 hurricane on Friday. Tens of thousands have been ordered to evacuate from communities along the state's steadily rising rivers, with the Cape Fear, Little River, Lumber, uh, Waccamaw, and Pedy rivers uh, all projected to burst their banks. And text messages from disgraced FBI figures Peter Strzok and Lisa Page discussing whether to open a case in a formal, chargeable way after Director James Comey was fired are under fresh scrutiny rather after Page told congressional investigators there was no evidence of Russian collusion at that time, according to three congressional sources. Two hours after Comey's termination became public in May of 2017, Strzok, a now former FBI agent, texted Page, his then colleague and paramour, Um, We need to open the case we've been waiting on now while Andy is acting. Andy is a reference to then-Deputy Director Andy McCade, or rather Andrew McCade, who temporarily took over the Bureau until Christopher Wray was confirmed as Director in August of that year. Page sat for a transcribed interview before the House Judiciary and Oversight Committees in mid-July as part of a joint congressional investigation into Justice Department um, handling of the Russia and Clinton email probes. During the deposition, Page said that by the time Special Counsel Mueller was appointed and Comey was fired in May of 2017, in Investigators still could not say whether there was collusion, according to a transcript reviewed by media. And Soon Yi has broken her silence to stand by her man. Uh, Soon Yi Previn, the wife of filmmaker Woody Allen, broke her silence in an interview published on Sunday, saying the allegations of sexual assault against her husband were so upsetting, so unjust, and that Mia Farrow, her adopted mother, has taken advantage of the Me Too movement. Meanwhile, the uh, uh, seven-year-old, uh, then seven-year-old, uh, her sister, who made the allegations as well as her brother, have stood by uh, the allegations against Woody Allen and in defense of their mother, Mia Farrow. On this day in 1787, the Constitution of the United States is completed and signed by a majority of delegates attending the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. And on this day in 1964, the James Bond movie Goldfingers, starring Sean Connery, premieres in London. The sitcom Bewitched, starring Elizabeth Montgomery, debuts on ABC TV. And please don't email me. I'm not endorsing the show, just stating a fact. And on this day in 2011, a demonstration calling itself Occupy Wall Street began in New York, prompting similar protests around the United States and the world. Well, Supreme Court nominee Judge Brett Kavanaugh testified before the uh, Senate some a couple of weeks ago in his confirmation hearing, and most believe that that was the end of that until the Judiciary Committee on this Thursday would vote on whether or not to advance his name for the full Senate to vote. Well, that's not going to happen now. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and the woman who accused him of assaulting her when they were high school students will testify publicly regarding the allegation before the Senate Judiciary Committee, according to the New York Times. The hearing will delay Kavanaugh's confirmation vote, which was previously scheduled for this Thursday. Judge Kavanaugh looks forward to a hearing where he can clear his name of this false allegation. He stands ready to testify tomorrow if the 
Senate is ready to hear him, White House spokesman Raj Shah told the Times. Well, Judiciary Committee ch- uh, Chairman rather Chuck Grassley confirmed um, this evening that a public hearing has been scheduled for Monday next. Grassley's announcement comes hours after Minority Leader Chuck Schumer called on his Republican colleagues on the Judiciary Committee to allow Kavanaugh and his accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, to testify after both parties expressed a willingness to do so earlier today. Senator Susan Collins of Maine also said on Monday that both parties should be compelled to testify under oath and should Kavanaugh be found to have lied in the in his denials, he should be disqualified from the confirmation process. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell lambasted Senator Dianne Feinstein, the ranking Judiciary Committee Democrat, on the Senate floor today for failing to come forward in July when she received a letter from Ford detailing the allegations against Kavanaugh. Ford, who initially asked not to be named, eventually identified herself after she was identified by others as the author of the letter in the Sunday Washington Post article. President Trump defended his nominee to the high court today, but said that he would accept a slight delay in the confirmation vote. He is somebody very special, the president said. At the same time, we want to go through a process. We want to make sure everything is perfect, everything is just right, uh, speaking to reporters at the White House. The president went on to say if it takes a little delay, it will take a little delay. It shouldn't uh, certainly be very very much. Well, we'll see what um, it actually ends up being moving forward. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the, fi- the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Robert Lopez. He's the author of The New Normal. I should say he's a contributor uh, and the person responsible for compiling the um, essayists to make up the book, The New Normal, The Transgender Agenda, published by Wilberforce Publications. He'll join us in the five o'clock hour. Well, Democrats are demanding a delay to the Kavanaugh vote, which they have now been granted. As predicted, when Senator Feinstein first tweeted about the woman accusing Kavanaugh, Democrats are using the accusations to derail his, or at least try to derail his nomination after nothing else worked. Well, the accuser, a professor from California, has made herself known publicly in the Washington Post. David French of the uh, series of events writes this, given the totality of the evidence, I believe it is uh, more likely than not that Bill Clinton committed rape and sexual harassment. I believe it's more likely than not that Donald Trump has committed sexual assault. I believe it is more likely than not that Roy Moore engaged in sexual misconduct with underage girls. But the evidence against Kavanaugh falls far short of the evidence arrayed against each of these men. So far, at least, it falls far short of the evidence against virtually any other politician or celebrity who's faced consequences during this hashtag MeToo moment. He goes on to explain in detail. Well, liberal Georgetown law professor Rosa Brooks opposes Kavanaugh due to his judicial record, but she explains why she's uncomfortable with asserting that his behavior as a teen tells us anything about his character now on Twitter. And from the Wall Street Journal, the timeline of this ugly disclosure suggests it's part of a calculated, if desperate, strategy to delay a confirmation vote past the November election. Now, there are two different elements here. One would be the accuser who, back in June, uh, made her accusations known to members of Congress. Uh, So I think these statements relate more to Senator Feinstein, who decided to wait until the 12th hour to make those allegations known publicly. So the politicization of the information uh, given to a member of Congress is is more what I think is being referenced uh, here. So again, from the Wall Street Journal, the timeline of this ugly disclosure suggests it's part of a calculated, if desperate strategy to delay confirmation vote past the November election. And from John Fund, all of this will strike some as a Hail Mary pass by Senate Democrats who want to delay any confirmation vote and spare their colleagues running in states Trump won from 
from having to cast a vote on Kavanaugh. In the Me Too atmosphere of today, there's no telling what a roll of accusatory dice might bring. I fear we are about to relive at least part of the national psychodrama over Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. That ideological maelstrom transfixed the country and divided it into bitter, warring camps of a Thomas supporters and Hill sympathizers. And that was when there was just one 24-hour cable news channel, no internet or social media. Again, from the National Review. The effort is starting to work. Jeff Flake wants the committee to vote delayed, which he has uh, succeeded. Guy Benson writes that absent additional evidence. I don't know how it would be remotely just to derail the nomination of someone who spent an adult lifetime building a personal and professional reputation based on this um, exceptionally thin standard. Well, we'll see what in fact will happen. I wanted to provide a little bit of uh, background. For one thing, I just wanted to comment on the Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill uh, face-off. Clarence Thomas was a very uh, popular nominee at that time. Most people in the country supported his um, his nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, at the time, he was the first African-American uh, um, that was, uh, or I should say, the second that was to be nominated for the court. He was the only one at that time who would have been on the court if, if he succeeded. Uh, there were polls taken at the time of the uh, hearings, which were quite extraordinary, uh, watched uh, as the country was riveted on um, the uh, the whole thing, and his popularity continued at that point. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh doesn't have the same benefit that um, uh, was experienced by the previous Supreme Court nominee, Clarence Thomas, so it's... Uh, Uh, It's not necessarily equivalent. The other thing is we're talking about two adults. She was under his employer, at least under uh, served under him in terms of their um, position uh, in that office. So there are some similarities, but there are some differences. I think the one thing that makes the two events um, share some commonality is the fact that um, this uh, disclosure came at the last minute. It's a final effort to derail his nomination. So to that degree, there are some similarities. Well, who is Christine Blasey Ford, the professor who accused Brett Kavanaugh of sexual misconduct when he was six, uh, excuse me, was 17 in high school, just days before the Senate Judiciary Committee was set to vote on the uh, confirmation. Christine Blasey Ford publicly came forward to accuse the federal appeals judge of sexual assault decades ago. Now, again, the timing was really decided by uh, Senator Feinstein and not by Ms. Blasey or Mrs. Blasey Ford. I think that's an important element. But the sexual assault allegation first came to light in the form of a letter obtained by Senator Dianne Feinstein, who sent shockwaves through Washington when she announced last week she forwarded it to the FBI. She is the top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, which is tasked with deciding deciding whether to formally recommend a Supreme Court nominee to the full Senate for a vote. But Ford publicly came forward in an interview with The Washington Post over the weekend, saying her civic responsibility is outweighing her anguish and terror about retaliation. She said she was able to escape when uh, uh, Mark uh, Judge, a friend of Kavanaugh's, who has uh, come to the defense after uh, of the of Judge Kavanaugh after the allegations became public jumped on top of them. He has no recollection of these events and says that's not what happened. Kavanaugh has denied the allegations, saying I categorically and unequivocally deny this allegation. I did not do this back in high school or at any other time. The judge said he has no recollection of the alleged event. Well, the accuser, Ms. Ford, is a clinical psychology professor from Palo Alto University in California, a biostatistician. She special 
specializes in the design and analysis of clinical trials and other uh, forms of intervention evaluation, according to the university. She, uh, or rather, her work has also been published in several academic journals covering topics such as 9-11 and child abuse. Uh, she has also taught and worked at Stanford University. Russell Ford, her husband, also told the Washington Post that his wife detailed the alleged assault during a couples therapy session back in 2012. During therapy, he said his wife talked about a time when she was trapped in a room with two drunken boys and one of them had pinned her to the bed, molested her and tried to prevent her from screaming. He said he remembered his wife specifically using Kavanaugh's name, although the therapist did not. Uh, She said during the session, Russell Ford recalled she was scared he would one day be nominated to the Supreme Court, which is extraordinary back in 2012. Well, Ford provided a, um, a copy of the therapist's notes to the Washington Post, which detailed her recollection of being assaulted by young men from an elitist boys school who um, would become highly respected and high ranking members of society in Washington. It's quoted as having said additional notes from a later therapy session said she discussed a rape attempt that occurred when she was a teenager. The Washington Post reported well, Ford is a registered Democrat. She's given small monetary donations to political causes, rather, according to the Post. Um, Once it was clear that Kavanaugh was President Trump's pick to replace retired Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court, Ford contacted the Washington Post's tip line, according to the newspaper. She also contacted her representative in Congress, Democrat Anna Eshoo. Uh, She sent a letter to Eshoo's office about the allegations that was uh, passed on to Feinstein, and that was, I understand, back in June. After she retained the services of Deborah Katz, a Washington, D.C.-based attorney, she took a polygraph test administered by a former FBI agent. According to the results shared by the Washington or shared with the Washington Post, the test conducted uh, concluded rather that Ford was being honest. Uh, the question that's now being raised is um, whether or not the event took place, I suppose, is the first question. But if it occurred, was it a matter of mistaken identity, as some are alleging? As Kavanaugh has said, he was never at such a party. Well, I should mention that uh, the attorney representing um, his accuser, attorney Deborah Katz, is representing Brett Kavanaugh's accuser, Christine Ford. When we come back from the break, I'll tell you a little bit about her. She made the rounds uh, Monday on uh, morning television to argue her client's sexual misconduct allegations against Supreme Court nominee Kavanaugh and said that they should be taken seriously, an appeal accepted even by the White House. But while her client's claims have raised some bipartisan concerns about uh, Kavanaugh, Katz herself, a longtime Democratic donor known for representing sexual harassment accusers, also has a history of downplaying or dismissing accusations made by women against Democratic politicians, including former President Bill Clinton and former Minnesota Senator Al Franken. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments as we seek to understand the details of this accusation and what impact it's likely to have on the Kavanaugh nomination. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, attorney Deborah Katz is representing Brett Kavanaugh accuser Christine Ford. She has weighed in on other sexual uh, accusations involving uh, President Bill Clinton, Uh, Minnesota Senator Al Franken. Uh, She said of Bill Clinton at that time, Paula Jones' suit is very, very, very weak. She was speaking to CNN on Talk Back Live, March of 1998. In a discussion about Jones' claims about Clinton, according to a show transcript, she alleged one incident uh, uh, that took place in a hotel room that, by her own testimony, lasted 10 to 12 minutes. She suffered no repercussions in the workplace. End quote. Well, Jones, who worked as a government employee in Arkansas, accused Clinton, both adults at the time, while Governor 
of Arkansas in 1991 of propositioning her. Clinton settled a lawsuit with Jones in 1998. Katz, in other media appearance, suggested that Jones didn't have much of a case. Um, uh, that uh, that is not enough to create a uh, sexually hostile environment, she claimed back in April of 98, according to a transcript of CBS Evening News. If a woman came to me with a similar fact pattern, Katz told The New York Times in 1998, I would probably tell her that I'm sorry, it's unfair, but you don't have a case. In more recent years, Katz also downplayed the wave of uh, sexual misconduct allegations against Al Franken, who denied some of the allegations but eventually resigned from the Senate over them. Context is relevant, Katz said of Franken, who was a comedian before his election to the Senate. He had, uh, rather, he did not do this as a member of the U.S. Senate. He did this in his capacity of someone who was still functioning as an entertainer. So apparently it was okay under those circumstances. I don't know what she would say about a teenager. Katz is now representing Christine Ford, a registered Democrat who's accused Kavanaugh while in high school more than 30 years ago. On Monday, Katz told NBC Today that her client would be willing to appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee to elaborate on her claims. Meanwhile, Kavanaugh forcefully denied the assault allegations against him uh, earlier today. This is completely false. Uh, This is a completely false allegation. He says, I have never done anything like what the accuser describes to her or anyone, Kavanaugh said. He added, because this never happened, I had no idea who was making the accusation until she identified herself yesterday. I'm willing to talk to the Senate Judiciary Committee in any way the committee deems appropriate to refute this false allegation from 36 years ago and defend my integrity. Well, the pair will each have the opportunity to do uh, just that uh, on Monday. Meanwhile, Fox News Channel Laura Ingram tweeted a story a short time ago that says Ford's parents were defendants in a case that was presided over by Brett Kavanaugh's mother, of whom he has spoken at length during confirmation hearings. Judge Martha Kavanaugh was the judge for a foreclosure case in 1996 in Maryland, according to the site, which contains mostly embedded tweets from a single Twitter user, but also two screenshots from Maryland's case search site. Although shots outline a case involving Ralph and Paula Blasey, Christine Ford's parents, that was presided over by Judge Kavanaugh. Now, Ingram tweeted the story on Monday without follow-up, a suggestion of promotion Uh, This story, of course, is that recent allegations of misconduct may um, be some sort of revenge play by Dr. Ford. There is no evidence yet that the the past foreclosure decision had any impact on the allegations. We can be certain to hear more about it in the coming days, in particular on Monday when those hearings uh, begin. Meanwhile, Judge Janine says of Senator Feinstein and her handling of the Kavanaugh letter shows complete disregard for truth and justice. And she writes, as a prosecutor, a superior court judge, as well as elected district attorney, the way it works is you are innocent until you are proven guilty. Clear, unambiguous words etched in stone. Why would anyone ignore this truth, especially the ranking Democrat on Senate Judiciary? Um, Senator Dianne Feinstein is stunning, but you shouldn't be surprised. The left is committed to the removal of a duly elected president, the destruction of our system of capitalism, and now an all-out assault on our system of justice. Again, quoting Judge Janine uh, on Senator Feinstein, to them you are guilty, guilty until proven innocent, but no one in all the years I've spent in courtrooms has ever been able to prove a negative. So forget the time-honored notions like due process, probable cause beyond a reasonable doubt, or a jury of your peers today, unsupported supported, uncooperated, untested words, not facts, are sufficient to convict not just the court of public opinion, but in the esteemed hallowed halls of the United States Senate. We'll see what uh, what happens moving forward.
forward. And then David French, uh, reflecting on all of this, I quoted a a short bit of this uh, column that appeared in the National Review. He writes that the allegations against um, Brett Kavanaugh outlined now on record in Washington Post by Palo Alto University professor Christine Blaisley Ford are substantial and serious. She claims that Kavanaugh knocked her down. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Robert Lopez. He is a contributor to the new book, The New Normal, The Transgender Agenda. It's written from a uh, biblical perspective, espousing the Christian theology on the subject of sexuality, published by Wilberforce Publications. He'll join us in the five o'clock hour. We're talking about the Kavanaugh accuser and the testimony that we are going to be privy to on Monday as the hearing is going to be made public. Uh, for those of us who have been around long enough, this harkens back to Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill, although there are some uh, significant differences between the allegate, the accuser and the uh, one being accused. Um, the timing certainly is re- uh, does recall that um, that season back many, many years ago. Well, White House counselor Kellyanne Conway uh, on Fox and Friends was interviewed earlier today saying that both Ford and Kavanaugh should be heard on the accusations, saying this woman should not be insulted and she should not be ignored. I think the Senate is headed toward a reasonable approach, which we now know uh, begins with uh, testimony on Monday. Allowing this woman to be heard in sworn testimony, allowing Judge Kavanaugh to be heard in sworn testimony. She said, I spoke with the president. I spoke with Senator Lindsey Graham and others. This woman will be heard. Conway said the committee will decide how and in what form Ford would share her account. We now know that will be televised a hearing on Monday, suggesting it could be a public setting or even over the phone. Conway, though, noted that Ford's account, while it uh, should be considered, should also be weighed against other evidence. This has to be weighed against what we already know, which is that Judge Kavanaugh is a man of good character and integrity. She said, uh, noting that he has been through half a dozen rounds of FBI vetting and has been lauded by women in every aspect of his life, including former classmates, mothers of young girls, and uh, he coaches in basketball and former girlfriends. Meanwhile, Ford's attorney, Deborah Katz, on NBC Today said her client would be willing to appear before the committee, which uh, we now know will happen on Monday. Uh, Senator Orrin Hatch, a Republican out of Utah, told reporters today that Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh categorically denied the allegations that he committed the uh, sexual assault at a high school party in early in the early 1980s and told the senator he wasn't at a party similar to what his accuser described. So he's not only saying that he was not involved in that incident, but that he had never attended a party of that description. His accuser made uh, her name and accusations public in an interview in The Washington Post, but she was essentially outed by Senator Feinstein. She had originally, in writing to her representative, indicated she did not want to be identified. In a statement to Fox News, Hatch's office said that Kavanaugh told the senator he was not at a party like the one Ford describes and added that Ford may be mistaking Kavanaugh for someone else. Also on Monday, two of Kavanaugh's former girlfriends issued statements vouching for his character. Senator Hatch, the Senate president pro tempore and third in the presidential line of succession behind Vice President Mike Pence, Uh, And House Speaker Paul Ryan told CNN that Kavanaugh was upset about the allegation and described him as very strong, decent man. Kavanaugh was scheduled to discuss the allegations with Judiciary Committee staffers at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time today. It was expected that only staffers for Republican senators would be on that call as Democrats have advocated for the FBI investigation of um, Ford's claims in lieu of further action by the committee. Democrats on the uh, committee said in a statement, in view of the enormity and seriousness of these allegations, 
A staff-only phone call behind closed doors is unacceptable, and Democratic staffers will not participate. Now, it's not clear if they changed their minds after it was made clear that there would be a public hearing on Monday. Uh, This isn't how things should be done, they went on to say, and is in complete violation of how this committee has worked in the past. So whether or not they were satisfied uh, remains to be seen. But that's the status of where things stand at this point. Well, today, September 17th, 2018, marks the 231st anniversary of the signing of the U.S. Constitution at the Philadelphia Convention in 1787. Um, This historic event and its enduring legacy is uh, rather significant to this constitutional republic. If we are to keep the flame of liberty, which is hard fought and uh, won over a long period of time, burning bright by promoting the civic knowledge of liberty for all those in uh, uh, each of our spheres of influence, we would do well to recall such an occasion and perhaps reread the Constitution to remind ourselves of what it says, what it doesn't say, and how we might uh, defend it or amend it if we find that it's inadequate, uh, rather than try to reinterpret it without the mechanism the Constitution holds within itself for the people to decide uh, that changes should be made. Well, President Trump today ordered the declassification of several key documents related to the FBI's probe of Russian actions during the 2016 presidential election, including 21 pages of an application for a renewed surveillance warrant against former campaign aide Carter Page and text messages from disgraced FBI figures Strzok and Page, Peter and Lisa. A White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said that the president had ordered the documents released at the request of a number of committees of Congress and for reasons of transparency. The documents to be declassified also include 12 FBI reports on interviews with Justice Department official Bruce Orr and all FBI reports of interviews prepared in connection with all other applications to surveil Carter Page. It was uh, not immediately clear when or how the documents will be or would be released. Congressional sources say that uh, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez does not know how soon he'll get the documents, but said the president's order covers pretty much everything that he wanted, and the uh, text messages are uh, a bonus. According to the source, um, uh, Nunez uh, said, wow, this is a direct order. Well, earlier this month, 12 Republican members of Congress publicly asked the president to declassify the June 2017 application for a warrant against Page, as well as FBI reports of interviews with Orr, known in bureaucratic uh, parlance as forms uh, form 302s. On Sunday, Nunez uh, said that witness interview transcripts and other documents from that committee's now concluded Russia investigation should be made public before November's midterm elections. If the president wants the American people to really understand just how broad and invasive this investigation has been to many Americans and how unfair it has been, he has no choice but to declassify. Well, House Oversight Committee Chairman Trey Gowdy said last week that it would be beneficial for Americans to see those documents. And now apparently that will be the case. We don't know the timing of them, but apparently uh, that uh, will be done. Well, more than nine months after the FBI opened its highly classified counterintelligence investigation into alleged coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia, FBI lawyer Lisa Page said investigators still could not say whether there was collusion, according to a transcript of her recent closed-door deposition. I think this represents uh, that even as far as May of 2017, we still couldn't answer the question, Page said. Well, Page was responding to Republican Representative John Ratcliffe of Texas, who wanted more information about a May 2017 text where Page and her then colleague colleague 
FBI agent Peter Strzok discussed the merits of joining special counsel Robert Mueller's team. Page sat for the transcribed interview before the House Judiciary and Oversight Committee in mid-July as part of a joint congressional investigation into the Justice Department's handling of the Russian and Clinton email probes. Well, according to the transcript, Page stopped mid-answer. Sorry, can I consult with counsel? I'm sorry, I need to consult with FBI counsel for a moment. Well, sections of the transcript reviewed by Fox show Radcliffe pursued the line of questioning at least three or more times. Page uh, provided varying answers. I cannot provide the specifics of a confidential interview, Radcliffe uh, told Fox News when asked for comment. But I can say that Lisa Page left me with the impression, based on her own words, that the lead investigator of the Russian collusion case, Peter Strzok, had found no evidence of collusion after nearly a year. Lisa Page left me with that impression, he wrote. Well, on May of uh, 2017, a text was highlighted by Inspector General Michael E. Horowitz in his recent report about the handling of the Clinton email probe by the FBI and the Justice Department. The day after Special Counsel Robert Mueller's appointment to the Russia probe in May of that year, Strzok and Page discussed whether uh, Strzok should join Mueller's team. Uh, Who gives, and there's an expletive used, one more uh, assistant director uh, an investigation leading to impeachment, Strzok texted in May, according to the IG report. Strzok later continues, you and I both know the odds are nothing. If I thought it was likely that I'd be there, no question. I hesitate in part because of my gut sense and concern. There's no big there there, referring to collusion. Well, the transcript shows Ratcliffe read the text exchange nearly verbatim to Page and asked her to explain it specifically if the lead investigator on the Russian collusion case, Agent uh, Strzok, believed the odds were nothing uh, and that they uh, had concern that there was no there there uh, regarding any collusion. Well, Page said, no, I don't think so. I think as a reflection of us still not knowing, it still uh, existed in the scope of possibility that there would be literally nothing, probably not nothing, nothing, as they probably knew more than that uh, by that point. But in the scheme of the possible outcomes, I can just imagine sitting in on this hearing trying to make sense of it all. She goes on, the most serious one, obviously, being crimes uh, serious enough to warrant impeachment, but on the other scale that, you know, maybe an unwilling person was, in fact, involved in the release of information, but it didn't ultimately touch any senior, you know, people in the administration or on the campaign. And so the text just sort of reflects that spectrum, end quote. Well, I'm not sure what the spectrum was from that statement, but nonetheless, that's the quote. Well, during the deposition, Page said that she was not trying to be cagey, but that there was there were restrictions rather on what she could reveal. I'm not supposed to talk about the sufficiency of evidence. So that's why I am weighing my words carefully. Well, she continued, investigations are fluid, right? And so at various times, uh, leads are promising and leads fade away. And so I can't I can't answer more his sentiment with respect to this particular text. But certainly at this point, the case uh, had been ongoing. We didn't have an answer. That's obvious. And I think we all sort of went back and forth about like what uh, what the answer was really going to be. Wow. Anyway, um, that's sort of the uh, the back and forth, as uh, Lisa Page testimony seemed to indicate, if you could make sense of it. And of course, there's more uh, that at the time uh, that this email in May of 2017 exchange took place, uh, there was not evidence that could be cited for collusion. But Mueller's investigation continues. We're going to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dr. Robert Lopez, a contributor to The New Normal, The Transgender Agenda. We'll take a look at what the scriptures have to say and the theology 
that matches what the scriptures teach. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back <laughs> eight minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Okay, I have to confess, I'd made it back to my desk and I started answering an email and sort of lost track of the time. Sorry, James. Anyway, glad to have you with us this second hour. We're going to um, talk with Dr. Robert Lopez this hour. In fact, our next segment, he is a contributor of The the New Normal, The Transgender Agenda. It's published by Wilbur Forrest. It's a biblical perspective on uh, the uh, transgender debate and a warning uh, against theology that would shift to match the cultural norm rather than reflect the historic and um, orthodox biblical view on sexuality. The second half of the book deals with uh, broader LGBT issues as well. Um, uh, Dr. Lopez uh, lived a gay lifestyle for a number of years. He was raised by a, a lesbian mom who was in a relationship throughout the, his uh, um, growing up years and uh, has some personal experience and strong feelings based on his own history, but as a, uh, uh, as a theologian, uh, has a biblical perspective as well. Anyway, he'll share his interesting story, and we'll talk about his book when he joins us in our next segment. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res. Well, a lot going on right about now. Uh, we've learned that uh, under new rules pertaining to Title VI, the federal statute to that forbids sex discrimination in education, the Education Department is going to clarify that school officials can adopt uh, or they have to adopt procedures that protect students from harassment while still guaranteeing due process rights for the accused. This is the uh, Education Department's new rules. They've been revealed, and here's what they say. Well, that's according to a draft of the proposed rules obtained by Reason magazine. Previously, it's been reported uh, on some aspects of these new rules um, after the department officials uh, revealed some of it, but now the uh, rules have been disclosed. The new rules make one thing abundantly clear. Those who claim this move by Education Secretary DeVos represented some kind of attack on women were wildly off base. You'd have to actively prefer that Title VI um, uh, adjudication uh, be unfair for accused students in order to find significant fault with what the education department is about to do. And yet representatives of um, Know Your Title VI, an activist group that serves alleged victims of campus sexual assault, claim that having read the rules, they believe they are worse than they could have imagined. Well, these draft rules put the safety of students at risk, the group declared on Twitter. Well, it's uh, an absurd mischaracterization of the document, which uh, you can read for yourself now. But in summary, the new rules offer a workable definition of sexual harassment, explains the circumstances in which school officials are obliged to respond to accusations and establish procedural safeguards to protect both the accuser and the accused on the principle of innocent until proven guilty, but charges being taken seriously. The rules are explicit about the problems with the previous guidance, which was improperly issued without notice or public comment, and is thus sub-regulatory in nature, meaning institutions can't be uh, sure they actually have to follow it with these uh, new rules, DeVos, uh, DeVos rather, is uh, following proper procedure and actually asking stakeholders to give their opinion. The copy of the rules, uh, for instance, had initially been sent to the Department of Health and Human Services for feedback, and it's being shopped around for that very purpose. Well, sexual harassment is defined as unwanted sexual conduct uh, that is so severe and pervasive that it effectively denies the victim the right to an equal education. But it also defined is uh, defined as sexual assault, as quid pro quo harassment in which something is offered in exchange for favors. Previous uh, guidance exceeded the text of the statute by requiring institutions to respond 
to conduct less severe than that prescribed by Title VI, the new rules state. Well, the new rules also make clear that universities are only obliged to investigate possible Title VI infringements that are actually reported to a relevant administrator. One of the most praiseworthy aspects of the proposal is the mandate to train Title VI adjudicators using unbiased materials that do not rely on sex stereotypes and instead must promote impartial investigation. Officials uh, with Title VI must also make training materials available for accused students to peruse, which means that underlying bias could be made more evident. The, The new rules also state that universities may terminate the adjudication process if, having learned of an allegation, it is determined that the conduct alleged by the complainant would not constitute sexual harassment. This could probably be stronger. Perhaps officials should be specifically directed not to continue investigating if no actual harassment claim consistent with the definition outlined above has been stated. The bottom line is the Education Department now has new Title VI rules that are uh, designed to be even-handed without the presumption of guilt on either party, uh, but that an investigation would rightly move forward. So, again, you can check that out online. Well, hundreds of people gathered in southern Oregon at the University uh, Stevens Union Hall in Ashland on Saturday morning for what they call the Fire and Smoke Summit, organized by State Representative Pam Marsh from the Ashland area. Pooling some 15 local and statewide speakers together, the summit was meant to inform the public about southern Oregon's wildfire situation. Now, we thought we had it bad here when we had smoke from both the east, or I should say the north and the south. But if you lived in a place like Ashland, it was much, much worse, we're being told. Uh, Bobby Wilde, who attended the event, described it. Uh, the summit was very illuminating, reassuring in some ways. Well, In an interview with um, NBC5 News, uh, Representative Marsh described why it was necessary to hold the summit, saying it's been a very difficult summer. We've suffered economically. Our health has suffered. We're looking at the figure, trying to figure what kind of community we can be if we have persistent conditions like this every year, which is a real possibility. Uh, covering topics ranging from forest management, public health to the uh, economy and climate change. The panel brought together groups from across the spectrum. One thing was really wonderful for me was just to get the history of fires and how it's brought to us uh, to where we are today, uh, said one attendee. Another attendee uh, agreed and said that she came out uh, uh, to learn what steps were being taken for forest management as well as the economy. Part of what drew me here today, said yet another, was what to do about the economic impact because I know a lot of business owners owners in the community, and it's having an impact on people. People didn't uh, come from out of state to the Ashland um, uh, Shakespearean Festival, for example. People who lived in the area didn't venture out to some of the local uh, opportunities that they might otherwise have availed themselves of because the smoke was just too thick and they were advised to stay indoors. So there was a lot um, to discuss. Um, so you can learn more about this uh, smoke and fire summit in, in um, Ashland Uh, But they discussed what to do next and in future. Well, because of Oregon's recent and projected strong economy, a personal kicker tax refund of $686 million is projected to go out in the first half of 2020. So reminds us the Cascade Policy Institute's Steve Buckstein. He writes that this would be the second largest kicker amount in the state's history. If you pay personal income taxes to the state of Oregon, you're going to get some of this money as a credit on your future tax liabilities. This would, again, raise the question 
question, is the kicker law good or bad public policy? Now, some people will in, uh, be envious that the rich will get much bigger refunds than the rest of us, and um, they don't really need the money, which is kind of an interesting uh, judgment call. While the average kicker is projected to be $336, they point to those in the highest adjusted gross income, a uh, bracket of about $401,000 and above, who are going to get something like 6787 What's often unstated in this argument is that those lucky top taxpayers paid way more income taxes than the rest of us, and they're going to get back exactly the same percentage of their tax payments as everyone else. So if you want to know uh, whether or not you're at a disadvantage, just um, uh, determine what percentage you pay. And that's essentially, if, if not a bit more of a percentage, uh, what they're paying. So whether the kicker is lo- uh, is a good or bad public policy idea, um, the uh, Cascade Policy Institute encourages us to think about who this money really belongs to. And is it um, uh, is it a rebate for overpaying taxes or taxes rather, or is it somehow our money that's better left in government coffers? You can uh, look at that article at uh, Cascade. Cascade Policy Institute's website, uh, the article titled The Kicker Debate. All right, we're out of time uh, for this segment. We're going to take a quick break and we will talk with Dr. Robert Lopez. He is a contributor to The New Normal, the Transgender Agenda, published by Wilberforce Publications. Up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, uh, Robert Oscar Lopez, is a contributor to a book, the new book, The New Normal, The Transgender Agenda. Now, there is a growing move to normalize homosexuality and transgenderism, even within denominations, seminaries, and churches. He was raised by two lesbians, adopted a gay lifestyle, and then came to faith in Christ, left the gay lifestyle before embracing God's design for marriage. He went on to earn his doctoral degree and now teaches at South Western Baptist Theological Seminary in Dallas. He and others have put together a compilation of essays on a variety of issues touching on the subject of sexuality from a biblical perspective as contrasted to what we're seeing popularized in our culture. Well, again, Robert Oscar Lopez served as an associate professor of English at Cal State University Northridge before he was forced to leave. He now teaches at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Dallas, was raised, as I mentioned, by a lesbian mother, and then uh, went on to receive an undergraduate degree from Yale and his doctorate, MA in English, classic, uh, classics from Sunny Buffalo. He reconnected with his biological father, fell in love with a woman, became a father, and these events, along with his research, led him to a position against same-sex marriage and toward a, a conservative political philosophy. He served in the U.S. Army Reserves and is happily married with two children. He joins us today to talk about a compilation of essays, The New Normal, The Transgender Agenda. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Well, this certainly is a timely uh, subject and a, a timely uh, book. I, I described you as a contributor, but to give us a little background on how this collection of, uh, of authors came together and how this book came about. Well, in November of 2016, we gathered a group of experts in a variety of fields. It was from literature, from science, from medicine, from theology, and we wanted to put together information that would help Christians navigate the transgender issue in particular, but also the larger LGBT issue, because we saw from the various locations where we were at, we were from all around the world, uh, that Christians really were being taken unaware by this whole movement. 
So we gathered. It was a really great event. Uh, it, it was called The New Normal, and we gathered the essays into a book. And I'm really happy that the Wilberforce Publications uh, put this book out. Uh, they're a wonderful press in England, and I think that they really sh- – I hope that they get more circulation in the U.S. But I think what we found when we were to gathered together for the conference was that in each of our disciplines, we just were so happy to share – what we had with other people who had noticed how quickly this agenda had moved upon the churches. I think that people were generally aware that the schools had been really taken, uh, uh, you know, had been, uh, I guess you could say, taken over by this agenda and that the government and the laws had changed. But Christians, in terms of their churches, really did not realize how quickly this had moved in. Is this a result of pastors being taken by surprise and unprepared uh, to take on this issue? Or is that we have become uh, so biblically illiterate that we're not really clear on what the, the scriptures teach as compared to what's uh, being emphasized in the culture? Or maybe a combination of both? I think it's a combination of both. I think pastors are under a lot of pressure and partly the organizers who wanted to push the LGBT agenda onto the churches, they really had a tactical advantage because they had already gained so much traction in academia. And there were many divinity schools that were housed in secular universities like Princeton or Yale or Harvard. Uh, And so there was already this body of research and a lot of rhetoric coming from scholars who had divinity degrees, but they were really under the guidance of secular administrations that were very pro-gay. So the theology that came out of those schools was a kind of doctored theology. It was rigged to keep secular pro-gay liberals happy, but it had enough red meat, if you will. It had enough terminology that sounded Christian so that it could pass muster in the church world. And I think pastors, they just did not really have uh, any kind of advantage when they were confronted with all of this rhetoric coming at them. And then young seminarians who were often staffing their churches and, and people who had been exposed to a lot of that theology in college or in graduate school. So pastors who were busy trying to take care of all the needs of the people in their church, in many cases, they just did not know how to handle the arguments that came at them. But in other cases, I think they also just were too timid, and they just didn't know how to deal with it. Um, And then in a few cases, I think the pastors were really on board with this, and they wanted to bring this in. But definitely, the biblical basis for saying that we should have children transition to the other gender and take lots of drugs that are changing uh, the chemistry of their body in unhealthy ways, and the theology that would justify homosexual relationships, these theologies are really not sound. And that's what we wanted to get across by sharing with Christians not only the theological basis for our position, but also all of the science and the cultural history so people could understand where the bad arguments came from. Give us a bit of an overview of your background and story. Well, you know, I grew up in the gay community. My mother was gay, and she was in a relationship with the same woman from when I was a child until she died when I was 19. And my mother was a psychiatrist, and she did do a lot of good work for the gay and transgender people in our community in Buffalo, New York. And I worked in her clinic from that time I was about 13, 12 or 13. So I was exposed to a lot of the mental health and social needs of this community, and I felt very comfortable in the gay community, so it was natural for me to get initiated into gay sex when I did, which was at the age of 13. Um, And then it was only really when I was in my late 20s that I met a woman, fell in love, got married, and then had a religious conversion and came to Christ. 
Um, I kind of did things in the opposite order of a lot of ex-gay testimonials because I met my wife and got married, and then I came to Christ mm-hmm. later. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but um, but that was my story, and so I can see it from multiple angles. You know, I understand the human needs of the gay mm-hmm. community. Yes. I understand how much pain is in that community, um, but that doesn't necessarily make me more winsome. It can sometimes make me have tough love for that, you know, because I think sometimes people who don't know the gay community are naive and they think that it's all victimization and they don't really hold them responsible for the things that they do. Well, let's talk about the book. It's divided into two sections. The first focuses on the transgender agenda, which, of course, is the subtitle of the book, and the second on other LGBT issues. And there's a collection of, as you mentioned earlier, uh, professionals from a variety of disciplines who contribute to the book. Tell us a little bit about how it's structured and who some of the contributors are. Well, it begins with Karis Mosley and Peter Saunders, and these are two British experts. Karis Mosley is a linguistics scholar and a theology expert from Scotland, and, and um, Mosley, I'm sorry, um, Peter Saunders is a physician. He's the president of the Christian Medical Fellowship. So Karis Mosley really gives an overview of thousands of years of theology to show that this is not new. Very often in the history of Judaism and Christianity, there have been movements to try to redefine gender and to undo the creation story in Genesis, to try to play games with the terms, etc. And so she gives us a map of how things like the Gnostic heresy were dealt with in the ancient world. And then Peter Saunders goes over all the medical evidence to show that the biblical instructions from God in terms of what we are to do with our bodies make sense, that when we go against the creation story of Genesis and we try to undo what God created in us, we actually cause very grave medical problems for ourselves. So he talks about all of the problems that happen as a result of the hormone drugs that are given to young children who are trying to transition, the mental health issues that happen from transitioning, and a lot of the other uh, medical issues that happen. And he basically debunks a lot of the research. Uh, again, the book is, pub- is uh, divided into two um, halves, one dealing with the transgender agenda and then the broader issues of LGBT uh, issues. To whom are you writing? To other professionals, to rank and file uh, Jesus followers who just want to have a better understanding of the issue, the theology that, that we find in Scripture, as contrasted by what we're being told from other quarters. Who is your intended audience? We hope that Christians can understand the book, and we did our best to try to be true to all of the scholarly documentation that we needed to bring to make sure that the documentation was sound. But at the same time, we wanted to make sure that Christians in their churches could get a grip on some of this information, because it's so overwhelming. Yes. For Christians out there in the churches. They just don't know how to deal with it, and it happened so fast. I mean, people didn't have enough time to deal with the gay issues, and then the trans issues just came like a locomotive <laughs> at, at people in the churches, you know, um, and so we hope that the footnotes and all of the scholarly sources can show people that this is very sound research, but at the same time, we want to make sure people can also just go to their church, and when they see their pastor or the youth minister or the person who's in charge of the nursery or someone on staff starting to throw at them some some of this bad theology to justify transgenderism or homosexuality, that they can respond with confidence and with certainty, um, and they can keep their church on point. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Robert Oscar Lopez. He is a contributor and really responsible for compiling this group of uh, experts. The New Normal is the title of the book, The Transgender Agenda. Uh, quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I am continuing my conversation uh, with my guest, who is a contributor of the, or rather, to The New Normal, Professor Robert Oscar Lopez. He, along with uh, many others, cover a variety of topics that are of great interest to those of us who want to maintain fidelity to the scriptures. What is the theological approach that the Western uh, churches should take regarding transgender issues in relation to children, for example, or children's sex reassignment surgery and the aims of medicine, or I'm a transgender gender, how to respond. In the second half of the book, focusing on LGBT uh, issues, same-sex parenting equivalency, a, a personal perspective, um, who's educating whom, the reversal of the parent-child relationship, Kinsey, and so forth. Again, the book is The New Normal, The Transgender Agenda, and it is published by Wilberforce Publications. Now, you've been uh, rallying uh, the church uh, to try to uh, help them avoid accommodating the so-called gay Christian movement. How has that been received? Well, it's very difficult because there are many strains of the gay Christian movement, and so the people who are deploying the theologians who are trying to bring homosexuality and transgenderism to the church, they kind of tailor the strain that they're going to be offering to the church that they're bringing it into. So, you know, they got into the Methodist Church and the Episcopalian Church, that was pretty easy. But to get into some of the more uh, conservative denominations like the Southern Baptists or the Presbyterian Church of America, they often present this halfway uh, gay Christian identity where they say, well, uh, these people are going to respect the biblical injunctions against the sex act, but they're still going to have the same sex identity, and uh, they're not going to be asked to become heterosexual, because one of the things that a lot of these gay Christian proponents say is that heterosexuality is just as sinful as homosexuality. Now, these are what I would define as um, feints. These are tricks that get people slowly used to the idea that homosexuality is on par with heterosexuality, which is not biblical at all, um, and then it gets you on a slippery slope to the point where you bring people into the church who are gay-identified, they rise up in leadership, and then you're in a compromised position because if they decide that they are going to become sexually active, you really can't remove them from the church at that point without a big conflict that will often divide the congregation. So this is a, it's a slippery slope model that's very difficult to work with. Part of this means you have to really understand the theology and be confident in your scriptures. I always encourage everybody to read at least three chapters of the Bible every day and just keep on doing it year after year so that you're familiar with everything that's actually in the Bible. Um, and part of it is just a question of managing the ecclesial, ecclesial I'm sorry, the ecclesiology of your congregation. You just have to manage the social relations of your church. Now, you are a, a huge advocate for, for protecting vulnerable children, and you've argued against adoption to homosexual parents. Now, you have a background having been raised by uh, a lesbian mother. Why are you um, so um, strong in advocating against allowing that kind of adoption? You know what I would say? If you look at the Ten Commandments, Okay, um, the fifth commandment is honor thy mother and thy father so that you will flourish in the land that the Lord has given you. That's very important because that's right up there with the Ten Commandments, and it's very gender-specific. It's honor thy mother and thy father. And the promise that follows in that commandment that says so that you will flourish in the land that the Lord gives you, it's, it makes the whole commandment somewhat collective. It's the responsibility of the community to always honor motherhood and fatherhood. It's not just an individual command. 
Um, and so we see that that command also warns us that if we deviate from that, we will not flourish. And I lived that, and many of the children that were raised in gay couples also lived that. They found that there were hardships in their life, that there was suffering, that they did not benefit um, the way that their peers did from the home lives that they had. And they felt that pain, and it was unfair. It was unfair because adults were pursuing their dream of a, the perfect sex life, and they put all these sacrifices on children who really should not have paid that price. So because of that, I think it's a foundational issue that it distorts so much what our notions are of parental obligations to say that you're going to force a child to go against one of the Ten Commandments just so that you can have the life that you want. It's just wrong in my mind. And I think that the material consequences of that flow naturally from the fact that it really goes against what God asked us to do. Now, in the book, The New Normal, we're talking about today, The Transgender Agenda, you write about the six viewpoints pertaining to sexuality that every Bible believer should support. Uh, what are those uh, those six um, views that we need to be uh, aware of and embrace? Well, so the first thing is that, you know, God created us to be heterosexual. So uh, in a crude sense, there are only straight people. All of us are in a body that was designed uh, to be a man that goes with a woman or to be a woman that goes with a man. So that even if you're celibate, uh, even if you never get married and you never get intimate with somebody else, you're still essentially heterosexual by nature. So homosexuality and heterosexuality are not on par with each other. Heterosexuality is mandated by the Bible. There is a song of songs which is all about male-female love. Genesis uh, clearly states that God wants us to be fruitful and multiply. He tells us to go out and engage in heterosexual activity. That is reaffirmed in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10. So part of what we are dealing with here is a mandate for heterosexuality. On top of that, Homosexuality is banned. Nowhere in the entire Bible is it ever presented in a positive light. There are many references in the Book of Kings, for instance, both the first book and the second book of Kings, to temple male prostitutes. So male homosexuality had gotten into the temples of Judah and Israel, and it caused a lot of problems. Sodom, of course, was totally destroyed in the midst of a bunch of homosexual conduct. And then Romans 1 states very clearly that homosexuality is a sign of a reprobate mind taking over the entire community. And then the book of Revelations mentions that Sodom and Egypt are the code names for this evil city at the very end of times. So um, there's never a positive depiction of homosexuality, so that if you ever get into a debate with someone who tries to justify homosexuality by disputing the prohibitions, by saying, well, you know, I can pick bones with the way you're interpreting Romans 1 or Sodom, or I can say, ah, you're kind of misreading Leviticus. The problem is that the Bible tells you that you should do what God asked you to do, and you should not do things that God never told you to do. You should wake up in the morning and you should say, what does God tell me that I should do today? You should not wake up in the morning to say, well, I have an idea in my head. Let me see if the Bible prohibits it. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that ultimately the right way to look at this is do what God told you to do. You will never find any passage in the Bible where God tells you to go and change your gender. You will never find a part of the Bible where God tells you to get into an intimate relationship with someone of the same sex. But there are many parts of the Bible where God literally tells you 
to go out and find someone of the opposite sex and to give them love and affection and to be fruitful and multiply. That doesn't mean that if you're infertile that you are somehow uh, shut out of that entire promise because, in fact, a lot of the commandments that deal with home, um, I'm sorry, with heterosexuality also reflect the fact that there's pleasure and there's love and there's intimacy and companionship. You know, in Genesis, one of the passages says that it is not right for man to be alone, and that's why God created Eve to go with Adam. So it's not just about procreation, but that is part of it. Mm. Let me ask you to respond to what I'm hearing more of, and that is the idea of fluidity when it comes to sexuality. I think that it is true that um, I I agree with the, the basic scientific notion there, which is that there there really are no fixed uh, homosexual orientations. Uh, you know, it's not like if you have a gay experience, you're gay for the rest of your life. It's very often that you will have those experiences and they will be transient and they will go away. That's very common. And I think researchers like Lisa Diamond already have proof that. Um, So I kind of would go along with that secular science in part, because the other thing is that I do think that heterosexuality is the default. That's how God created us. So I don't think that heterosexuality is fluid, but I think that the deviation, homosexuality, can be transient, which kind of points to a fluidity, if you will. But I think ultimately all of us really are created to be straight. Well, the book is titled The New Normal, The Transgender Agenda. Again, there are a variety of contributors, all professionals in a variety of fields, including my guest. What do you hope your readers will uh, take away from a read of this series of essays? I hope that they will sense the urgency in this. I hope that they will get a sense of the historical uh, context of all of this, that this is not necessarily new, that we have, as a church, we have confronted this many times in the past where people looked to the area of sex and gender and they got crazy ideas in their heads and they tried to undo what the gospel said. Um, but even though it's not something new, it is something that's in front of us right now. And if we don't get ready to confront people and to try to defend what God's design is for the gospel, we will lose our church, and we are going to harm our children. Uh, These are not mistakes that are without victims. There are people who are going to suffer if we make those mistakes. So I hope that people can understand why we feel urgent and why we feel that this is a necessary thing to address, and I hope people will feel like they are equipped to go in their churches and to stand up to this, uh, to defend what God's design is, to be joyful and celebratory about it, because it's a beautiful thing that God gave us, and he, it's beautiful that he made men and women and he made them to go together, and that it feels so good when a man and a woman embrace uh, in the marriage bed. Um, so I hope that people take away all those things, and I hope they don't feel discouraged or negative or angry. <laughs> but yeah. of course, there's going to be moments when you're going to feel that. So, yeah. Well, Dr. Lopez, thank you so much for the book and for talking with us today. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it very much. Again, the book is titled The New Normal, The Transgender Agenda, published by Wilberforce Publications, a collection of essays on a variety of issues specifically related to the transgender agenda. And then in the second half of the book, other LGBT uh, issues as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Um, the 2014 Hollywood movie that you might have seen, uh, I know I saw it and uh, appreciated it, Unbroken has uh, released a sequel that's in theaters now. One of the things that I heard um, in terms of people who were a little disappointed by the film was that uh, Louis Zapparini's story ended before really his life began. If If you are familiar with his Story and testimony, you know what I mean. Well, the 20, or I should say in 2014, Hollywood released the inspirational hit. Uh, it was Unbroken, the film directed by Angelina Jolie, based on a book of the same name, told the compelling true life story of Louis Zamperini, who was an Olympic athlete and World War II vet. He was a prisoner of war for a period of time. The movie, however, it stopped short of telling his whole story. And the most compelling part of it, although if you saw the film, you know, um, how compelling it was uh, up to the point that the uh, the movie Unbroken took us uh, was that uh, he came to faith in Christ. And so a whole new chapter uh, began preceding that after he was finally released from the Japanese prison camp where he spent a considerable amount of time. He struggled mightily uh, with PTSD. Well, at the time of the movie's release, uh, Franklin Graham, uh, whose father, the late Billy Graham, played an important role in Zamperini's life, observed that the film had left out the most important part of the book, where Zamperini recounts his return home, his coming to faith in Jesus Christ in 1949. But again, that followed uh, a season in which there was great struggle with PTSD, as one might imagine, having been in a prisoner of war camp. Well, this weekend, the rest of Zamperini's story is uh, hit theaters. Uh, The movie titled Unbroken, Path to Redemption picks up right where the first movie left off. Now, the film tells how Zamperini met his wife, sought to return to um, compete in the Olympic Games and struggled with PTSD, eventually leading to him becoming a Christian. Now, it's absolutely incredible that uh, after his uh, war experience, um, he was able to do all of that. He, um, as I mentioned, he tried to return to compete in the Olympic Games. He uh, married his um, uh, his girlfriend uh, and became a follower of Jesus. Well, Zamperini's son, Luke, who is the film's executive producer, explained, this film explores my parents' struggles with dad's demons. His PTSD was manifested by these horrendous nightmares that began while he was still in the prison camp. Zamperini uh, noted that the film depicts how a his father was saved from his self-destruction through an epiphany of faith and was then able to forgive his abusive Japanese captors. And again, that is a significant part of his life story. Not only does he come to faith in Christ, he experiences the grace of God, the forgiveness of his own sins. But as all of us should experience, he had a, a, a capacity to extend forgiveness to the very um, captors who are responsible for the PTSD that was uh, threatening his life. It's uh, refreshing that a different studio director and cast were willing to produce a movie that tells the rest of his incredible story. But that uh, story is now in theaters, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing the rest of it. I was familiar with those details. And I have to agree, I was a little disappointed that it wasn't part of the story, but it's uh, remarkable, even up to the point where Unbroken uh, ended. But now uh, the uh, the follow-up, the, the sequel that tells the rest of the story, as they say, is in theaters. Again, it's titled Unbroken, The Path to Redemption. Uh, picks up right where the uh, the last movie left off. The film tells how he met his wife, sought to return to uh, compete in the Olympic Games, struggled with PTSD, eventually leading uh, to uh, becoming a believer and extending the love of Christ to those who were responsible uh, for the abuse he endured and the PTSD that uh, threatened to end his life, or at least end the vitality of the life he had left. So 
Wanted to mention that for those of you who saw and enjoyed the first movie. If you didn't, chances are you can find Unbroken and you can see it before going to the theater to see what I think is even the best uh, the best half of the story. But I would encourage you to do that if you're looking for a great uh, a great true story that involves uh, Billy Graham uh, as well as a World War II veteran who experienced great, great hardship. Well, taking a look at the rest of this week, um, we're going to take a production day tomorrow, but we're, we're going to cover live breaking news as it unfolds throughout the day. And then on Wednesday, I really want to encourage you to listen, especially women who are listening, women of all ages, I might add. Joining me in studio will be Sandy Snavely and Connie McClellan. They are um, presenters of the Masterpiece Conference, The Art of Finishing Well. Now, this is a conference not only for women over 50, but it's also a a conference for younger women who uh, aspire to be influenced by them. It is a wise young woman who recognizes the value of an older woman and what she might bring to uh, to her in terms of helping her to avoid uh, common mistakes, uh, sharing wisdom, and so on. So this is a conference for all women uh, called Masterpiece, the Art of Finishing Well. So Sandy Snavely and Connie McClelland will be my guest uh, in studio. We'll give you all the important details. The conference is in October, and again, we'll give you uh, important details when they join me in studio. That's on Wednesday, and the information will also be on my Facebook page on Wednesday um, as well. So looking forward to a conversation with them, having uh, reached uh, that milestone myself and exceeded it, referring to age. I'm looking forward to uh, to talking a bit more about it. And then on Thursday, we're working on confirming a, a conversation with Trey Doty, who is with Responder Life. This is an organization that is uh, ministering to first responders. And I'm always impressed when I have the opportunity to read their newsletter and catch up on uh, the kind of uh, help they're providing those who serve in extraordinary ways in our community. But at a significant cost and to support the men and women in uniform, whether that's as an EMT, a police officer, those first responders and their families is a benefit to all of our community. So we're going to catch up with Trey Doty and give him an opportunity to let us know how Responder Life is doing. And that will be on Thursday's program. And then, of course, on Friday, assuming that um, there's no significant breaking news, which I fully expect there will be, we're going to spend the bulk of the day uh, taking a look at the lighter side of the news. As we discussed earlier in the program today, the Kavanaugh hearing was scheduled for this Thursday. My guess is that will be delayed um, and... Uh, that will be delayed, given the fact that they're going to uh, hear testimony, I believe, in the Judici- uh, Judiciary Committee, that's my guess, uh, from the accuser as well as the nominee. And I think James just mentioned that it looks like Monday is going to be the day that they are now pushing that forward to. Now, that's pretty optimistic, uh, given the fact that um, uh, Democrats who are very interested in obstructing the movement of this uh, process under any circumstances, this, this is the, the latest uh, attempt to do that and to assume that um, they are going to be able to hear from both Kavanaugh and his accuser uh, before Monday and then uh, have the Judiciary Committee uh, recommend sending this out to the full Senate. That's that's optimistic, but that's what uh, we're now hearing. So we're going to follow that story. And assuming uh, events take place on Friday or for that matter, tomorrow, we're going to make sure that that breaking news is a part of this program. I want to thank James Blind for producing and engineering today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.